to Foresight's Book Club podcast episode on Gaming the Future, Technologies for Intelligent Voluntary Cooperation, co-authored by Christine Peterson, Mark Miller, and me, Alison Dugman. In this meeting, we discuss Chapter 4, Skim the Manual, Intelligent Voluntary Cooperation. Here's a brief chapter summary, so you know roughly what to expect. When we play the game of civilization within a framework of simple rules, interesting patterns emerge. Today's market economy is such a pattern, emergent from rights and contracts, constructing the rules of the game. The historical decline of violence shifts interactions to voluntary ones that tend to serve the player's goals. Over time, civilization is becoming more intelligent by developing abstraction boundaries, from APIs to institutions that coordinate local knowledge into an astounding problem-solving ability. Civilization becomes increasingly super-intelligent and aligned with our interests. By exploring and reinventing the underlying rules from within the game, we can now unlock new levels of cooperation. Our guest speaker for this discussion is David Friedman, author of Legal Systems Very Different to Ours. We discuss shelling points, hydrogen traps, crypto nations, priority preferred hill climbing, and civilization as a superintelligence. If you like the book, follow it on Fawcett Institute on Substack. There will soon also be a physical book version available to buy. We hope you enjoy this meeting. I'd like, if I have time, to cover three different things, uh, none of them in the chapter, but all, I think, relevant. The first is an explanation of shelling points and what they have to do with the stuff that the book is writing about. The second is what I think of as the economics of virtue and vice. Uh, and the third, if I have time, is how one could create institutions to replace the present system of higher schooling. Uh, I want to start with shelling points. And shelling points originate as a solution to what looks like a not very important problem, namely, how do you coordinate when you can't communicate? Uh, so the classic original version by Schelling is that two graduate students are told they have to meet in New York City at the same place at the same time, and they can't communicate in advance. And the point of it is that in that situation, what you're looking for are unique outcomes. In this case, uh, what is the unique time? You know it, it's noon or maybe midnight, but those are the only times that to the way we think of it's time you can expect other people in our society to see as, as unique. Uh, supposedly, their solution uh, was under the clock at Grand Central Station for a unique place. And that seems rather uninteresting because you usually can communicate with people when you want to coordinate with them. But there are situations where you can talk to people but can't communicate with them because you have no reason to believe that the other person is telling the truth. And that's the standard situation in bargaining. So we economists think of it as the bilateral monopoly problem game, which is I've got an apple. I don't like apples. My apple is worth a dollar to you. I want to sell it to you. If I really believe that you won't pay me more than a penny, I should accept that offer because a penny is better than nothing. If you really believe I won't accept less than 99 cents, you should pay that much because 99 cents for a $1 apple is still better than nothing. So each of us has an incentive to pretend to insist on the price he wants uh, in order to get his outcome in the bargaining. And if you think about that, that applies to a whole lot of situations other than selling apples. In particular, it applies to the question of whether or not you respect my rights, that you can think of somebody who comes to me and says, I can do something that will hurt you. I can dump my garbage over the fence from my property to your property in order to save the trouble of taking it to the dump. But I'll agree not to if you pay me $5 a month. 
And it's clear that $5 a month is cheaper than the cost to me of dealing with the garbage. Nonetheless, I don't agree to do it. And the reason I don't agree to do it is that I've committed myself to a policy of uh, if someone tries to violate your rights, bear unreasonably large costs to stop him. Uh, I think of this as the human equivalent of territorial behavior in animals, where an animal marks his territory and will then fight to the death uh, against a trespasser. The critical fact in both cases is that just as in bilateral monopoly, a fight to the death is a loss for both parties. So both parties are better off if they can reach an agreement, but each one wants the agreement in his direction. And similarly, in this case, uh, I and my neighbor are both better off if we reach an agreement that he doesn't dump the garbage over my over the fence, but uh, I would prefer the version where I also don't pay him $5. And my policy, respect my rights, is a believable shelling point. It's believable that when I say that's uh, the, the point at which I'm willing to fight, so to speak, at which I'm willing to pay much more than $5 a month to hire a lawyer to, to get you to stop it, uh, that that's believable. Uh, and I think of that similarly. I, I have another story where bank robbers uh, are trying to delot, divide the loot. Each of them thinks he did more than half the work. They know if they wait too long, the cops will show up. So they agree on the 50-50 split. And the critical point is that both of them see 50-50 as a unique outcome and an alternative thus to continual bargaining. Uh, so that's the, the basic uh, idea of it. And its relevance to the stuff in the book is that it explains how it's possible to have a society which is not a Hobbesian uh, state of nature, a society where people mostly respect each other's rights, not necessarily because they believe in rights, but because they jointly see where the lines are, where the boundary lines are across which somebody is committed to bear unreasonably large costs in order to stop uh, somebody crossing those lines. And I think that turns out to be a useful way of thinking about it. Now, in the case of, of, of trade with people, that still leaves a bilateral monopoly sometimes. It's still the case we can't agree on the price, but at least we've bounded it in that uh, the most uh, that you will pay me for the apple, sorry, the least you will pay me for the apple is zero. I don't have the option uh, of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you don't have the option of forcing me to pay you off for, for not taking the apple or something. So that if we agree that we're bargaining within the constraint of respecting each other's people's rights, that greatly re reduces the, the risk because there's the cost of otherwise going into what you might think of as a Hobbesian state of nature. That is to say, each of us is willing to, to fight the other in order to get what he wants. So that was my first point. And since I have very little time, I'm not going to go into detail. If people are curious, I've got uh, a couple of chapters of the third edition of Machinery of Freedom in which I work this out in much more detail. Second thing I wanted to talk about, which is not really discussed in the chapter at all, but perhaps should be, is what I think of as the economics of, of, of virtue and vice. Uh, and we start with the puzzle of why there are people who won't steal even if nobody's watching. I think it's clear there are such people, quite a lot of such people. And Maybe the answer is something to do with morality or religion, but I'd like as an economist to have a, a self-interested answer. And my answer is that if whether you are such a person is knowable, if you think of having your utility function written on your forehead is the way I like to describe it, then if you are 
looking for a job, the value to you, to your, the amount by which your employer is willing to pay more to somebody who won't steal if nobody's watching than somebody who will is greater than the amount you can steal. I think that's pretty obvious because if you hire somebody who will steal when you're not watching, either you have to spend time watching or he steals. If you spend time watching, he gets nothing, but that's a cost to you. If he steals, uh, he gets something, but you lose at least as much as he as he steals and typically more, since it's more valuable to you, which is why you've got it. Uh, so that means that if my utility function were written on my forehead, I would be better off in any relationship such as hiring somebody, working for somebody, selling to from somebody, any voluntary transaction, if I was a nice guy. If I was the sort of person who involuntary transactions took account of the welfare of the other person as well as of my own. And my claim is that my utility function is written on my forehead in somewhat blurry pencil. Uh, that is to say that we are all continually giving a monologue on the state of our minds in face expressions, voice tones, gestures, actions. And it is not impossible to lie in that monologue, but it's hard. That good con men are rare. And therefore, for the most part, people can tell by watching you and observing you whether or not you're a nice guy uh, and are willing, in effect, to pay you for being a nice guy in the terms of any voluntary transaction or for you better terms because they'd rather work with such a person. The flip side of this, what I think of as the, the, the economics of, of vice, is the committed bully, big, tough guy who has made a commitment strategy, which is if you do things I don't like, I'll beat you up. And other people know he has that strategy and they don't want to be beaten up. Therefore, they defer to him. And it's it's risky because if, if he runs into another guy with the same strategy, they might end up with one of them dead or at least hurt. But nonetheless, it can be a profitable strategy. The interesting point, however, is it's only a profitable strategy in involuntary interactions. That after all, if you apply for a job and you're saying, by the way, if you do things I don't like, I'll beat you up, you're not likely to get the job, not unless you're willing to work really cheap. So the conclusion of this argument, which is a result I sort of like, is that a society where most interactions are voluntary will tend to have nice people, will tend to have people who act as if they were altruists, so to speak, at least with regard to those they're voluntarily associating. You might not care about the welfare of other people. On the other hand, a society where transactions are largely involuntary is going to have a larger number of bullies, a larger number of people who are committed to threatening to do unpleasant things to people if they if they don't if, if they don't behave the way the way the way the bully wants them to. Uh, and in that sense, the voluntary society will actually have nicer people in it than the involuntary. And I should say voluntary and involuntary, I'm not just thinking of politics. Uh, if you think about a society where everybody is born in a small town, grows up in that small town, dies in that small town, your neighbors are an involuntary association. So your neighbors might, in fact, find it in their interest to be tough guys who make sure that you you do what, what they tell you. Uh, whereas if you're in a society where, which is much more fluid, that's not going to be the case. So it's partly a matter of whether it's slavery or freedom, but also just partly a matter of all right, let me go on to my, my third point, because one of the intriguing things that the chapter talks about is how you might be able to outcompete existing institutions. And I think it makes the correct point 
that you shouldn't be too fast to assume that the existing institutions are wrong and that therefore, if only your clever idea was implemented, everything would work wonderfully. Uh, that that model has been tried a number of times in the last uh, hundred and some years uh, with somewhat expensive results in, in, in places like Cambodia or, or, or the Soviet Union. Uh, but it is worth trying to compete with existing institutions. So I thought about the question of what are the functions that the current system of higher schooling, colleges and universities, serve? And I think there are basically three different functions that they serve. I may have missed one. Uh, the first function is a filter. That is to say, the fact you've been admitted to Harvard is information, useful information for a potential employer, a potential spouse, somebody else who wants to interact with you, because Harvard goes to a good deal of trouble to try to only admit smart people. They don't do as good a job as they should, I think, having done interviewing for them and observed the results, but they're, they're, they, they, it is certainly a very non-random filter. Furthermore, the fact that you graduate from college is further evidence. It's evidence... Maybe not that you've learned a huge amount, but that you're willing to show up at classes enough to do the work necessary to pass the exams and so forth. So one function of college that you're going to have to replace if you want to get rid of colleges is some way of demonstrating the interest in third parties that you are able and competent. Second function is education, uh, that colleges do teach some stuff, although perhaps not as much as we would like them to. Uh, the third function is mate search. Uh, I'm not sure people pay enough attention to that. But if you really think about that, mate search is one of the main human activities. And colleges are taking a bunch of people who are potential mates, people who are about the same age, about the same social class, about the same intellectual ability, pooling them for four years. Now, you might think observing behavior of college students that this is the primary function of colleges, and for some it probably is. Uh, but at least it's an important function. So then the question is, how would you replace these functions uh, in an alternative system? And the first, the filtering, I think you really do it in two ways. One of them is somebody has to establish an examination system, which is sufficiently widespread and trusted so that it becomes a substitute. So that you can say, to some extent, of course, you have that with the SAT. You could after all, skip Harvard and just show your 800-800 to your potential employer. But we would like to have more of that. So you would like to have better institutions by which one can uh, compile a record that you can show to an interested third party at very low cost to him, which will show basically that you're a smart person. Uh, that won't show you're a hardworking person or not very well. So for that, I think you want a system where the people in this system are also working or at least where many of them are. So where you have uh, institutions where people are have a job, where the job can re report on them, and so forth. And I remember seeing a summary of an academic article which looked at people who had been accepted by an elite school and then gone to a less elite school. And it turned out that they got a lower wage in their first job, but the same wage in their second job as people who had gone to the elite school, as similar people. And I thought that was an interesting result because what it suggests is that your first job provides a pretty good substitute for the information generated by having actually made it through Harvard or Yale or whatever. Uh, and therefore, that would do it. 
education, I think, is the easiest one. We have books. We've had books for a long time. We have online education. People can get together and study together as they do. So I think as long as you've got a pool of people who, who want to get educated living in more or less the same area uh, and, and, and trying to get educated, ideally, uh, you would end up with something a little like the Scottish university system that Adam Smith was part of, where the professors were directly paid by the students. So you would have some people who would set up and say, I'm teaching the following thing. Here's my charge. Come if you want to. And then a lot of less formal things involving online and other things. And then the third, and maybe the hardest one, is the mate search element. And for that, what you really need is some way of pooling the, the kind of people who want to mate with each other, who regard themselves as potential mates, in one place. And that, that might mean creating a non-college dormitory. That is creating a large apartment building, essentially, probably illegal in the state of California because you're going to be discriminating by age, among other things. Uh, I had a colleague at, the, at, at SCU who I concluded had probably reduced human happiness by more than anybody else I knew. Nice lady. But she had been apparently partly responsible for making it illegal for an apartment building in California to make age or having children a criterion of reading, which meant it was less likely that, that kids would meet other kids because the apartment building wouldn't be specializing in kids. It was less likely that elderly, childless people would get a good night's sleep because there might be a crying kid next and so forth. But in any case, that's a problem at the moment, but it's not a problem in all states. So you want to set up essentially a housing arrangement, something like a dormitory, which is specializing in the right kind of people, somehow makes it clear that it's doing that uh, and probably has educational functions as well, that, that you know they're going to rent out a few classrooms to the professors and so forth. Uh, the other thing you, there are two other solutions, however. One of them is Greenwich Village. That is one of them, which has happened from time to time in the past, is you have some neighborhood, which everybody knows, is the place where bright young people of some category or other live. Uh, and the other solution is that you free ride on the universities. That is to say, there is nothing to prevent somebody who's not going to Harvard from getting an apartment in Cambridge, or somebody who's not going to Stanford for getting an apartment in, in Stanford or Palo Alto. Uh, and I don't think it would be all that hard for somebody in that situation to attend uh, events at the elite university and socialize with the kids in the elite university and assuming he's reasonably socially aggressive and competent become a part of that pool of, of, of potential mates uh, who are centered around the elite or, or not so elite university. I'm thinking in, in terms of Harvard and Stanford, but it could just as easily be something BSCU or uh, VPI or, or George Mason or something uh, less elite. So I think it ought to be possible with some sort of social entrepreneurial activity to create an effective substitute for the colleges. Uh, I'm not proposing to do it myself. I'm a theorist, not an experimentalist, because real world is much more difficult than theory. Uh, but nonetheless, it seems to me this is in principle a doable project and one that would produce very large markets. So those are the, the three things that I wanted to talk about. And I now have about six and a half minutes before I've got to run. Wonderful. Um, if anyone has a question, please feel free to hand. I also want to give Mark in the chance to go for it if you want to. 
um, as usual, the heuristic or like algorithm, what have you that we're using for this is that I'm asking questions and you can stop me by raising your hand or by just chiming in. Um, I had two questions, uh, which are, I think, you know, at least tangentially orthogonally related to this. Um, I also want to draw attention to the other book that you wrote, apart from just Machinery of Freedom, there's also uh, Legal Systems Very Different to Ours. And I really so love that book. And it's actually so interesting in our Intelligent Corporation group. Last time we had Chris Berg from RMIT there, and he introduced this crazy term of paleo crypto institutionalism um, as a thing of actually looking at other institutions, maybe that, uh, you know, from, from different um from different instances and from different legal systems. Uh, and then seeing, for, for example, the Icelandic one that you really, I think, have like uh, vet quite thoroughly. And then actually seeing um, if you can rebuild them or can build them better again now that crypto tools are available. So are there any institutions that were tried before, but we didn't really have quite the uh, technologies that we now have? That's why they may have not worked. But uh, now that we do have all these crypto technologies, it could actually be interesting to resurrect yeah. these institutions. I, I think the way I would put it is not that it didn't work, but that it didn't scale. That a lot of, if I think about what I think of as feud law, which is sort of the basic private rights enforcement decentralized system, which has existed in lots of times and places. Uh, and one of the problem, few, the basic rule of feud law is if you wrong me, I threaten to harm you unless you compensate me. And one of the problems it has to solve is keeping it from being used for extortion. So you don't want a situation where I can pretend that you harmed me and then say, I will burn down your house unless you compensate me. And a lot of the way it's done in existing past societies depends on people knowing each other. So that what's going on in one of a number of different ways is that the third parties around you have a reasonably good idea of whether you really wronged me or not. Uh, and therefore, when it gets into violence between us, since they don't like to have extortionists around, it's easier for me to find allies and harder for you to find allies. And that's a greatly oversimplified version of a chapter in, in legal systems, very different in which I discuss four different problems that such systems have to solve. So it seems to me that in a society like Iceland, you may not know very much about somebody who's on the opposite side of, of the island because communication is very slow and they don't have modern, uh, modern communication or modern transportation. And you certainly don't know much about somebody who's in Norway or Sweden or Finland or Germany or England. They did interact with other people, but it's <laughs> much less than we can. So I would think that the use of reputational mechanisms in various ways ought to become more practical with modern communication technologies. And I've actually discussed long before I wrote that book, uh, I discussed ways in which you could do contract enforcement online where the critical thing is making it easy to prove to interested third parties which person is, has violated the contract. And you do that by using the combination of a digital signature and an arbitrator. So you, you specify when you sign your contract who both sides agree can arbitrate it. You give the arbitrator's public key that lets anybody who wants check the verdict's digital signature. And you now have a way in which you can make everybody in the world able for three seconds of computer time to check out which of you 
uh, violated the contract and therefore which one you other people should avoid dealing with in the future. So I think that would be the, the clearest case that occurs to me in answer to your question would be that, that modern communication devices in particular make it possible to use reputational mechanisms on a much larger scale than in the past. Wonderful. I have a lot of follow-up questions. For example, we introduce split contracts in the book in the next chapter uh, as one interesting way in which we can introduce arbitration to this. But we have three or three more minutes and I want to also give Christine the chance to ask a question. Hi, David. Thank you for those great thoughts. Um, uh, I just thought I should mention, you probably know this, but others here may not know that there are plenty of people who already are hanging around the college campuses who are not registered and Even attending classes in the larger classes, um, it used to even be possible to attend the smaller classes if you made friends with the professor, but um, that might be being cracked down on now. I don't know. But my question for you is, have you been tracking any of these alternative institutions that have been showing up? And if so, do you like any of them, like uh, Heterodox Academy? I think there are others out there. Uh, have you had time to look at those? And what do you think? No, I know that things are happening partly due to COVID, uh, but I haven't really observed enough of them to have a real opinion on them. Uh, but yes, my when my daughter was uh, a homeschooled, home unschooled, high school age, she was auditing my classes at Santa Clara University, several of them, and nobody seemed to object. And then I was a special case because, of course, her father was teaching the classes. But my impression is that there are a lot of professors whose basic reaction is, I like teaching people who want to be here and who therefore, whatever the rules officially are, will be perfectly happy to put up with uh, non-registered students showing up in their classrooms. So so I agree that you could free ride even further uh, in that respect. Mark. Yeah, uh, the issue of your utility function is written on your forehead. Yes. Uh, it is uh, wonderful. Uh, raises all sorts of wonderful dilemmas. Uh, uh, in the short term, there's, uh, you know, the existing world, there's already the issue of, of uh, psychopaths and sociopaths can be extremely good at faking yes. uh, all of the cues. And there's this whole discipline of acting school that train people to be able to fake cues, uh, you know, for, for other purposes, but obviously those skills can be reused. But Projecting into the future, one of the things we talk about in later chapters of the book uh, is that um, non-human automated agents, um, uh, computation-based agents, of course, don't have their utility function written on their head, can be operating on strategies that are completely opaque with regard to outside signals, yes. but other people looking at them know that that's the case. So one of the things that we talk about some is the idea of an agent splitting their cognition between the opaque off-chain portion and a small on-chain portion whose purpose is to be completely transparent and thereby unfakeable uh, so that they can make deals with counterparties that need the assurance of that transparency for that portion of their decision-making structure. I think of these, the psychopaths and such as sort of like a hawk dove equilibrium, where if everybody is honest, then nobody goes to any trouble at all to figure out whether people are honest. And then it pays a, one person in a hundred to be <clears throat> dishonest. Uh, but uh, but I haven't really thought, I mean, that, those are interesting thoughts, but I really have to go now. So uh, thank you for talking about that. We can talk about it more later at some point. Bye-bye. <laughs>
Thank you so, so much for joining, David. It was wonderful to have you. Okay, great. I'm glad we got one more minute uh, out of him. And yeah, I think uh, Mark, you already kind of like um, shadowed what we will talk about, I think, in Chapter 8 is what you just referenced. Um, so if people want to move ahead into cooperating with uh, artificial intelligences, which Mark just, uh, I guess, just foreshadowed, then that's Chapter 8 in the Substack book. Um, and yeah, I think we'll be like referencing bids uh, left and forth, uh, I think, the, the entire time. Uh, and yeah, cool. Okay, great. So um, are there any immediate comments to David's talk? Any things that you guys want to get off your chest before we dive into the chapter? I just want to give some space. For more ideas. Yes, we have a raised hand. Go for it, Ellen. Uh, yeah, uh, one of the things I worried about, wondered about for many years, is how good can triumph over evil, because evil has tools that good can't use. And I think what David said is that good has more opportunities for finding allies than evil, and that that is uh, the lesson that I, I I learned when reading the book Anderson. I think that that applies here as well. Yeah, certainly. I think uh, in one of the in, in the earlier chapter, which you know where we actually discuss values, we also discuss um, you know I guess having to look forward to many many rounds of games, which may make you a more, a more cooperative player because you know that cooperating in the first rounds may pay back later in later rounds. Um, and so in, in that in that sense, I think it, it fits quite nicely with this. Okay, wonderful. So um, I want to have a few shows of hands now, um, if you don't mind. And so the first show of hands I want to have for who uh, read the chapter that we discussed last week, which was on values and value diversity. Raise your hand. <laughs> uh, ideally with the actual raise your hand icon. Okay, we have a few. Wow, okay, good. I mean, is that, did you good. mean last week? Because I read the chapter. Well, well, it's a long time ago. Yeah, well, that 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 counts. You were okay. already on the game, but okay. just in general, who read? That? I just want to check whether people here actually did the reading. Okay, good. That's very, 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 very encouraging. Wow, guys. Wow. Okay, lovely. Um, okay, and who read? Now, everyone, lower the hand. <laughs> and now, the second round. Um, who read this week's chapter, which is chapter four on uh, skim the manual intelligent voluntary cooperation? Okay, we're getting even more hands up. That's that's better because that's the chapter that we discussed now. So I'm glad. Um, okay, wonderful. Thank you, everyone. You can lower again. Uh, this is fun. Um, I should say that uh, the videos from last week, uh, for those of you who weren't there or those of you who just want to rewatch them because, frankly, we covered a ton. We started with the evolution of morality uh, through game theory. Then we discussed philosophical conundrums about values and whether they can have an uphill or not. Um, and then we went into tropism with uh, Juan Benet and went all the way out into uh, long-term uh, long strategies for cooperative games. And so it was a lot. It was a really, really full-packed session. And we had a ton of keynote speakers. So we all didn't really get to chat. So I want to make sure that we get a lot of that in today. But I just want to say, in case you want to listen to the videos, they are on our Discord in the Intelligent Cooperation channel. That's where we always post everything. I'm going to post the Discord here again. But if you do want to chat, between these meetings, if you have more things to say than we can cover in these two hours, then that's a really good place to do that in the Intelligent Corporation channel. Okay, great. So with that uh, with that said, I think we can maybe dive into today's meeting. But for that, maybe just to pick us up, right? 
So last, uh, in the last meeting, in the first meeting where we met, we introduced ourselves. Mark, Christine, and I discovered, uh, discussed a little bit the reasons for why we were, we were writing the book. Um, and then in the last meeting, we discussed, we basically introduced players of the game that we're discussing. Um, and we recently concluded that many of them have extremely different values. Like we already have uh, value diversity. And if anything, values may further drift in the future. So there's um, perhaps not much hope in actually trying to align everyone on one long-term strategy. Um, so is anyone here who has a different summary of last year, of, of last week's chapter that they want to put out there to bring people up to speed on what we discuss now? Okay, I take that as a no. I just want to check, guys. This is your time to, uh, to ask a bunch of questions and so forth. Last week's chapter, I, uh, I also want to say, came with a bounty. And so the bounty of last week's chapter was um, to really uh, discuss whether values will converge, will drift um, and further apart, and, and what will happen with values in the very, very long term. And we're really trying to start this uh, entire book, uh, started it off with this philosophical approach, because we actually think that it's important uh, to get people up to speed on the fact that values are pretty different. And that's why we may have to find solutions that can account for value diversity on the very, very long run. And that's why we introduced this concept of heritotropian ascent uh, that then Juan Benet talked about. But this is really kind of like our start into this chapter of like, why do we even talk about technologies for intelligent voluntary cooperation? We talk about them uh, because we may not be able to converge uh, on one uh, objective goal that humanity wants to optimize for. And with very different uh, players that have very different values already and may do so even more in the future, uh, we need to kind of establish a playing field that allows for these types of voluntary interactions to take place across humans and hopefully ultimately across AIs. Cool. Okay. So let's move into this chapter. I have a bunch of discussion questions that we sent out uh, already uh, via email, and I think it would be really lovely to go through them and again, you know, take them as a first kind of like um, appetizer for, for what we could discuss, but by any Ons, just feel free to like blurt out what you found was most inspiring about the chapter. Those are that's just like a rough schedule for what we could be discussing. Okay, so like having started with why values differ and that we now need technologies for voluntary cooperation, we then go on into the history of these technologies bit by bit the history of volunteerism, the mechanism at work, strategies for the game ahead, then the history of a cooperation, the mechanism at work, strategies for the game ahead, and the same for intelligizing these interactions the history of uh, of like a uh, civilization becoming more intelligent, the mechanism at work there and what to do uh, for, for strategies ahead. And now perhaps we can just um, go forth and just go through a few of the reading questions, actually. Um, okay, great. So perhaps um, we start with volunteerism. Like volunteerism, maybe I'll... Um, bring it up. Oh, before, before I want to say, are there any questions, comments already? <laughs> Feel free to interrupt me. No questions, comments? Okay, good. Then uh, just to, I think, situate people. Uh, and let's see, maybe I have it on for a little bit of the discussion. Uh, maybe I'll turn it off after a while. But um, to situate people as to what we're discussing, this here is the chapter. And we discuss volunteerism upfront, right? That's the first thing we discuss. And so I want to know from you guys, first reading questions uh, that we had up and that we also sent out beforehand. So I'm hoping that people are prepped is on voluntarism, right? The game so far in voluntarism. So please 
Uh, can someone, and I think David already said this a little bit, but perhaps explain the concept of a shelling point or how does volunteerism serve as a shelling point? Do you have any questions about the concept of a shelling point? It's a really important concept, so I just want to make sure that we actually get some time to discuss it. So would anyone want to, yeah, just give us uh, a few ideas of how does volunteerism serve as uh, a shelling point? Yeah, I can, I can help here. Um, so a shelling point is, I, I think David really did an amazing job discussing this. I'm just going to retread his stuff. A uh, shelling point is basically a meeting place, either literally as in his example or figuratively, where people can just say, hey, we all sort of agree that economically we will exchange goods um, so that we hit this particular point, um, which you could maybe think of as a national equilibrium or at least a steady state of some kind in value exchange. And there's this notion in the book that uh, volunteerism is the idea that you choose to do certain value exchanges as opposed to being forced into them in some capacity. And that, um, as it turns out, people like Steven Pinker and a few others have noted, our society has gotten dramatically better in terms of reduction of violence, curing of diseases, and so on. Um, and it, it seems like that's come with the rise in volunteerism, which means if people choose the interactions that they get to make with other people, then they actually end up in shelling points that may be better than one in which some authoritarian entity kind of forces people to meet at their idea of, an, uh, you know, the, the best state. Um, I have a, just a comment um, on the origin of violence. So I paste a link in the chat and um, it's interesting. Um, David named the problem is in when the cooperation is involuntary and maybe, and the link there is from UNESCO and the origins of violence. And it's there, it said that it's a myth that prehistoric was more violent because many data were early, by early, uh, recent, not far. So if you want to check the, the data there, it's up to you. And it's kind of, um, maybe it's associated the, the violence a great amount of violence um, at, before our civilization so, um, maybe is associated with uh, with more involuntary cooperation. So maybe far, far away is what it was group, small group, everyone knowing each other, linked in each other. It was a world, kind of group and world. So the, maybe the cooperation was voluntary. So there is not maybe not as much violence as we think, uh, but there's a great, great amount of violence and uh, involuntary cooperation and with without communication because the shelling point is when we cannot communicate and this is not intelligent system. Uh, when people, when agents cannot exchange information, it's, it's a problem of intelligence. There is no communication. So maybe it's a, from the organization of the first, very first society, more involuntary and more um, um, control uh, without free information flow and without communication. So sorry for my English. Thank you. I'd like to uh, respond to that by just pointing out a interesting uh, historical irony that, that also 
um, uh, informs us on some of the issues here, uh, which is the same Thomas Schelling that uh, realized the power of the Schelling points in the absence of communication. Uh, that was also the Thomas Schelling who was a critical game theorist in working out uh, the the first strike instability, uh, mutually assured destruction, the whole um, uh, uh, set of game theoretic uh, dilemmas around uh, the nuclear competition uh, early after uh, World War II and, and early after the Soviet Union had the bomb. Um, uh, they kept trying to play it out and uh, and do it and and come to some kind of stable equilibrium purely in terms of the game theoretic payoffs. And it wasn't very robust. And it was Schelling who came up with the idea of the red phone. The red phone was a Schelling invention, which is exactly introducing the communication in order to reinforce the stability of the peace. So I, th- I think that's a, a very informative li- li- a little irony uh, uh, that it comes from the same person who realized the power of coordination in the absence of communication. Yeah, I remember when we wrote the book, we had like a lot of uh, individual thoughts about naming it them shelling points with shelling boundaries and the like very subtle differences between them. But I think in the interest of keeping it simple, we stuck to shelling points. But yeah, yeah, I agree with that, Mark. Mike. Hi. Um, I was wondering if like voluntarism could be considered kind of like just crowdsourced utilitarianism because um, as opposed to like top down enforced uh, utilitarianism because most um, it's hard to gauge um, what will maximize the pleasure and the nice pain of an individual better than the individual themselves. And I just kind of asking that because I think the last chapter, it, um, so if it's a game, then, then um, ideally I'd like to know how you get points. And if, so it's kind of difficult to calculate that if it's very like it's all really muddy because there is uh, there's like no uh, uh, finalization of the rules because there's the, the competing uh, like Kantian and utilitarian ethical systems and, and rule utilitarianism. So at like could you do you think that you could reduce it to um, a more fundamental uh, definition? of just being like uh, crowdsourced, individualized um, utilitarianism uh, with, I guess, rules. Um, I guess it would be, yeah, is there any way you thought about that? If that was the proper understanding? I, I can respond to that. Um, so I am not a utilitarian. I don't, I don't believe in it as an ethical theory. Uh, but a main point that we make uh, early in the book uh, is that there are many different value theories, and there's no objective criteria for, for, for arguing between them. There's no, uh, we should not expect that with enough argument, we could all arrive at a conclusion that any one ethical theory is right. So what we're trying to argue for is that uh, this notion of voluntarism uh, is sufficiently general and neutral 
that we want to make arguments that are appealing to people coming from different value theories, including people coming from utilitarian value theories. Uh, and we want to, but we want to found that argument in explaining to anyone coming from any value theory that they're trying to come up with a theory to act on in a world in which they're coexisting with other people operating from other value theories. So the main concrete difference between something that a utilitarian might recommend uh, versus a voluntarist uh, is the thing that in, the, in this chapter we explain with the scenario of showing the dot um, uh, uh, that's outside the Pareto box, but above the diagonal line. So it's positive sum, but not voluntary, where Alice is saying to Bob, let's move here because, um, yes, thank you, that, exactly that diagram, where that dot is one that's positive sum, uh, and in which Alice could argue, well, let's move there because it'll make me more better off than it will make you worse off. And whether or not your, um, whether or not your ethical theory would think that that is preferred to the status quo, which is the red dot in the middle, uh, we make the argument to appeal even to utilitarians that if you try to move there, then you create a conflict that puts you down into the Hobbesian trap in the lower left because you've created a conflict, you've created expectation of a conflict, uh, and now things don't work out well to move to the positive sum area. So if you really want positive sum uh, in general and avoiding Hobbesian traps, you should avoid trying to make positive some moves that would create conflicts that can escalate. Uh, so I do believe that the that the recommendations we're making uh, can be justified from a utilitarian value theory as well as can be justified from other value theories. And I think that's the part of the appeal we're trying to make for volunteerism. So if you convert that to points, so if you're in the being algebraic area, then neither person gets gets any points. And then if you're in the um, um, Pareto uh, optimal or um, preferred, then each person gets one point. And then do anybody get any, does anyone get any points if they're at the, the spot that you were just, just mentioning? So if, you, if, the, if the system actually moves from the red dot in the center, the status quo, if it actually moves to the dot that Alice is proposing, then a utilitarian in theory would think, okay, that's a net gain. We've had, we've had more net utility for the for the system as a whole. Um, uh, you know, I coming from a different value theory might not like that, but that would still a utilitarian would favor that. But what we're pointing out though is the attempt to get there can have consequences that even a utilitarian won't like. So they should get zero points if they're, if that is the, okay. Thank you. Uh, to, to the comment on points, what you're seeing in there are the points. And Bob wants to move the points in his direction, and Alice wants to move the points in her direction. So, that's right. But, I mean, like, if, 
So that would be like for their own their own points, but not societal societies. Engineering, engineering, interacting. Exactly. exactly. And each value system has its own score for each of those points in the picture. Okay. Yeah. And and so I think one of them Yeah, and I and I think um right now utilitarianism is a plausible enough value theory for many people to adopt because all people are similar enough to each other that we can have intuitions about interpersonal comparison of utility. Whether those are good intuitions or not, we can debate, but at least we can understand why we can have such intuitions and find them compelling. Once we're coexisting with cognitions that are incomprehensibly different from us, I think the notion of, of having inter-agent comparable metrics of utility just becomes incoherent. And one of the really nice things about the, um, and, and once you do that, then the diagonal line goes away. Once you give up on metrics and, and interpersonal comparison, the diagonal line goes away, but the Pareto box remains. It's robust, uh, even just giving that each entity has a, has a rank order without a metric among choices. So if you're going to calculate points for some societal engineer that's playing this game, would you multiply X by Y uh, to calculate their score? So, so they be farther up to the upper right-hand corner, the higher the number, and then it would decrease uh, disproportional um, if, as it moves to the levels. I mean, I think in terms of the points for each player individually, I think what Alan said is exactly right. That the it's the for Bob, it's the position on the x-axis which yeah. are the points that flow to Bob, and for Alice, it's the positions on the y-axis, uh, and it's all, and the positive sum, negative sum, is only with regard to uh, players other than Alice and Bob trying to think about uh, from some more objective or external point of view what. You know, what kind of overall motion of the system should we regard as ethically preferred? So if you're that one, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, one, one thing I kind of want to maybe add to this is um, utility as a concept that the economists use really describes an abstract state, but people don't necessarily want utility. What they want is food or water or exercise or uh, you know, lower wage or money or whatever. And um, one of the reasons I like the concept of voluntarism is that it implies that you literally volunteer to do something as in you move your body or you like signal very clearly that like you want a particular thing. But that is all situational. Any, any a- action that you take to volunteer at a particular moment in time is like a, a specific context. Um, I've sort of found uh, a video game like spaces to be really helpful in analyzing the way that like gaming the future might look because um, video games allow you to set up very easily comparable situations Uh, in the real world. It doesn't quite happen. You can imply certain things from voting behaviors or other actions uh, about a, an abstract utility theory or utility functions that, that don't actually mean what you think they mean because People's situations have some kind of confounding factor. And um, in general, I guess to, to make, make this my comment as widely applicable to people as possible, 
I would say, you know, anytime you're thinking about utility functions, that's really great for imagining trade-offs in some system. But, you know, given where we are in the development of, um, you know, social planning, I believe it's really important to consider people as having many utility functions and they make constant trade-offs across them in different domains. And then the expectation is that through intelligence um, that comes from the AIs and maybe informing them and then also allowing them to participate in different free markets, we can enable them to like optimize their own um, well-being, let's say, or utility, but by doing it across many, many, many different games, many, many different, many different areas. And I think utilitarianism to me, whenever people put out the quarter cases, they're often like impractical because the idea that you just have one utility function across all of these different games is like, you know, it, it's very difficult to imagine that being um, useful. He Greco. Uh, yeah. <clears> Hi, <throat> thanks. Uh, so yeah, just a comment. Uh, so on one part that I found uh, really interesting and it was just uh, the fact that when there's more players uh, taking voluntary action, then the more reliable a system is. And then on the, the inverse side, uh, systems where power is unipolar, I guess, uh, as it's referred to, uh, are always much more brittle and likely to break down, uh, I guess, over time. Um, and yes, yeah, so I really like this bit uh, where it went on to talk about the subsid- subsidiarity principle, uh, which I was previously unaware of. Uh, and so, um, I, if I recall correctly, it's, uh, it's the idea that when, uh, coming, we're trying to make decisions, especially on, uh, like smaller, uh, scales, um, uh, like it's, uh, here, hold on, let me check my notes. Okay, yeah. So when coming to joint decisions, we should do so on the smallest scale necessary in order to create the best uh, like systems. And then so just reflecting on this, I had a question, or it just led me to think that uh, in the future, I was wondering if, it's one in which will uh, technology will like enable uh, like people to engage in uh, like engage with one another, however they see fit, uh, cooperate with one another, uh, just using like a like a plug and play uh, almost type interface. If that makes any sense. Uh, I did. I did not understand that last point. I understood. Um, so, like, uh, basically, will there be almost like user interfaces or just tooling that uh, allow, like, in the future, that allows individuals like uh, to engage in whatever type of uh, like engage in whatever type of cooperation that they're. Uh, that they wish to engage in. Uh, so like, whereas now, um, I guess there's all these centralized uh, 
just intermediaries. Uh, and so with, I guess, the rise of like smart contracting systems, where we're getting to see more, I guess, uh, direct like face-to-face uh, cooperation between parties. And so, yeah, uh, it just led me to think of a future in which uh, systems are... Um, like people engage in systems by just kind of uh, like using like a drag, yeah, not a drag and drop interface, but just kind of selecting. Uh, like if there would just be, I guess, tooling to uh, engage uh, like in transactions with other people. I guess uh, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not maybe I'm definitely wording it uh, uh, odd. Like doubt and direct democracy pardon are you thinking like would DAOs fall into the category so that could be one thing but literally anything so uh just like i guess right now we think of like web applications or, or mobile applications but uh like essentially a future where everything is uh like a secure like i guess offer safe uh like smart contract where people are just able to kind of like plug and uh, uh pick whatever type of uh properties and behavior or like whatever type of items they wish to kind of uh just have a play i guess when interacting with uh, other people yeah. I kind of want to riff on this a bit because I've, I've had this idea a lot and might be able to you know, share some, some thoughts that could help a lot. I've called it like an API for yourself um, where you know anyone can use AWS resources or any other kind of resources from Google or whatever, but like API call and just as easily you should really be able to access um, you know, just your or, or mark in a similar way. Uh, and so the way I've kind of imagined it is, for one, you'd have to document um, a lot of things that are happening. So my property, my house, my car, my whatever, and then maybe information that I have and beliefs I have and perspectives. Like, all those things need to be shared. Um, I think that kind of means having some sort of uh, AI backed digital twin. So it's like, you know, you, you look at, uh, in, in a simple case, say, you, you look at everything I, I've said uh, for a while and extrapolate on how I might reply to a comment or you at least have an awareness of um you know what what objects I own and like what who's borrowed them at what times and what my preferences are and so on. Um but I, I totally think this can be a layer that people build in the world. And I believe uh that like letting people sort of call it um without me even maybe directly being aware of, of it or if I choose to engage in doing this stuff manually I can, it kind of allows much more volunteerism. I think stuff like um, democracy just doesn't work at all because it's um, the proposition, like writing proposals and so on is, is very time-consuming, understanding them and their externalities is kind of time-consuming. All of that stuff, you end up usually delegating your votes to someone else um, and sort of voting with the high, which is kind of similarly true for DAOs as well. Um, I, I think the way I imagine it, it's a lot more uh, streamlined so that like the, the kinds of cooperations can be extremely low-level and I, I like the term API because it really implies um, programmatic access. And I think a lot of the coordination would actually be 
AI digital twin to AI digital twin rather than like physical body to physical body. So maybe to wrap this up, I would say if I have a hundred grand worth of assets, um, people should be able to use my API to like use those assets to get me more money um, by a smart contract, uh, you know, uh, token transfers or whatever. And I spend maybe 10 or 20% of my time at most uh, tracking these things because um, the algorithms are so efficient that like I've, I, I, I can basically just use it as passive income. That's and then for the parts that are that are that are mandatory up big engage, at least I know I'm highly likely to engage in those kinds of interactions without being uh, stressed. So that's that's sort of how I imagine this uh, this kind of structure. Uh, yes. Yeah, so just quick question uh, in this uh, like future. Uh, so you're you're actively giving like like granting authority to this API to kind of show whatever type of whatever assets or whatever you want uh, to show to the public world, right? As opposed to just like everything you're, you're owning automatically getting <clears throat> added to this API. Yes, there are probably be some resources you choose not to make available by API call. You can also permission it so that only certain kinds of people with specific access controls, um, credentials have, have access to specific objects. Yeah, so I guess that's like one. That, yeah, that's definitely something that, uh, with like the concept I was thinking of, like would enable. Uh, and I think in the beginning you spoke on like AWS. So, uh, yeah, like one example would be just kind of, uh, like I mean, choosing service providers or or like when building technology, uh, just being able to directly. Like having a dashboard that kind of just shows you whatever your options are. And then, you know, rather than AWS, though, kind of it being more like uh, the options being just more smaller scale. Yeah. Yep. I think it's a great analog. I think a lot of this requires some UX and product thinking, uh, which I'm hoping to do for SickChain in the, you know, coming months. But um, I, I totally believe that. The AWS for people is is a good uh, you know first analogy. I love that. Again, we're jumping ahead to the chapter on uh, cooperating with intelligent agents because there we have at least like a human AI symbol uh, and like the twin uh, as part of that uh, as part of that chapter too. And I also love that you're referencing the API bit, which is something that we reference in chapter four, right? We discuss the really parallels between markets and APIs and and how. Both of them serve as like coordination devices and they compose uh, levels or like bits of knowledge into uh, more complex problem solving abilities. So very cool. Uh, we're like jumping back and forth. Uh, any further comments on this particular point? Just want to give some space. It's interesting. Like to be one of the negative view towards what people like like Google are doing with lots of people's data which is basically try, already trying to create digital twins for you and just show you ads, which are what you already wanted in the first place, which would basically save you time having to look at ads for things that you do not want. Uh, so it's, it seems like that's kind of the... Uh, would, would you guys say that's kind of what they're trying to do already? And a, But it kind of conflicts with people's um, valuation of privacy, which um, I'm not sure why it's um, why most people 
me. Maybe somebody can explain why, why most people value whether or not um, a corporate entity knows if you would prefer like brand of cereal over another brand, but it seems like there's a general aversion towards it. So I don't know if it's uh, just a fear of newness um, or if there's other uh, better justification. Mark, any comments on the privacy question? Um, could you could you um, state the question in a focused way? Uh, yes. So it seems uh, it seems to me beneficial to most individuals to have focused advertisements uh, that are most likely to satisfy their desires. Yet, in general, there's a there's a predominant uh, aversion to that because, um, I, and I guess the reason is that they they value privacy over time. Do you believe that it is a, a rational, um, a, a rational cost benefit analysis on the on the part of individuals to to value their privacy over having a digital like digital twin uh, effectively um, in the form of whatever is deciding um, the system that is telling which ads to show you? So, I mean, there's obviously, there's a trade-off there. Um, the the cost on their privacy of revealing their preferences to advertisers is a very, very real cost. And I, my habit is 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 always to turn that off Anytime I ha- I'm given a switch to turn that off, um, but obviously my my how I decide to weight those trade-offs isn't the way everybody will decide to weight those trade-offs. Uh, a way to think about um, uh, one aspect, putting the privacy aside for a moment, uh, one way to think about what's going on with uh, advertising is that the scarce commodity is my attention. Um, and one can imagine a uh, a system where um, people bidding for my attention, that the revenue of taking up my attention goes to me. And then when I, you know, so I'm, I'm thinking in terms of a system that had actually been used at one point for an email system, what I thought was, what I experienced and I thought was great. Unfortunately, it's not existing in the world anymore, which is you have one kind of inbox, which is essentially an auction where people bid for position in the inbox. Uh, and then if I read something and I think, oh, I'm glad somebody spent the money to get my attention on this, then I have an easy interaction for rewarding them, for returning, at least returning to them the money that they spent to get my attention as a token that I, that that they bet right that I actually found it to be worth my attention. Uh, and then people who, who uh, cost me attention without compensating me with information that I thought was worth my attention, I just don't return their money. Um, uh, so you can think of that kind of email system as a certain kind of advertising system where I get compensated for ads that waste my time. Uh, and then starting from there, Building on top of that, um, 
uh, a system for mediating that with privacy protecting cryptography like zero knowledge proofs and multi-party secure computation, you can imagine that the advertisers and me both get the benefits of that without the cost of revealing my preferences to actual advertisers. Yeah, it's already, uh, the cost is already imposed on the advertisers. For instance, with Google Ads, they have a, a cost per click. So you want to maximize the cost per conversion. So it's it's in the best interest of the advertiser um, to make sure that it's only shown to people who actually want the thing that they're selling. So yeah, yeah. the difference is there's no zero knowledge proofing. Uh, if and do you think that's, um, for instance, Google uh, will soon be implementing such a thing because it seems like that would overcome. So it's good. So well, let me let me. Um, Google has some really good research on um, on differential privacy on uh, and approximations of differential privacy. Differential privacy uh, is um, uh, basically a way to fuzz aggregate statistics. To make the the uh, the querier that's getting the result of the the aggregate query uh, difficult for them to reverse engineer that to uh, to privacy preserving answers about individuals. Uh, so Google has some great research on that um, uh, because it's not because because uh, zero knowledge in many cases is not available. Uh, in this kind of advertising scenario, because the advertiser does get different amounts of money and different amounts of conversion at the end of the day, which is, you can think of as an aggregate query, as an aggregate statistics. So it's not zero knowledge, it's some knowledge, but you want to have um, good confidence that the, that the knowledge cannot be cross-correlated to turn into individual knowledge. Um, uh, the other a place to pay attention to is Brave, at least early on, I don't know about recently, but Brave early on did a lot of thinking about uh, uh, how the browser could provide targeted advertising to individuals using cryptography local to the browser, such that the advertisers, again, were mostly blinded to the preferences of the individuals while still gaining the 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 benefits of the targeted advertising. We are also, again, I think coming back to the problem or like the issue of privacy and different types of uh, new encryption schemes uh, and so forth in the next chapter, uh, where basically we go through a few new tools in crypto commerce and how they can improve our cooperative uh, institutions. And then um, we then go through privacy enhancing ways of like revamping all of these uh, different types of um, arrangements. And so we will get back to that question for sure. Um, okay, wonderful. Um, well, I think, you know, I have my discussion questions here and maybe we'll just, you know, continue a little, uh, a little bit away and see what else pops up for you guys. Um, but one thing, for example, that we discussed and where we got like a really high engagement for was this notion of compensating for power through different types of voluntary arrangements that are decentralized. And so there's a bunch of ways in which you can do that. Uh, I know that, for example, charter cities and seasteading um, uh, are a, a part of a way in which people can already uh, engage in these more decentralized voluntary interactions and actually form communities based on them. Um, and there's many more now in cyberspace. We have Balaji, for example, here 
to discuss 1729, which is a network state that he's founding. And there's many more now, right? Uh, and you don't even have to look all the way to network state, but you can also just look to DAOs and, and other types of arrangements that really just um, create different types of interaction that people uh, now engage in, different types of communities that they are part of, and different types of reference classes that then uh, compensate for power by uh, by uh, by really becoming one of the main ways in which people cooperate. And so I'm super curious, do you have any good ones? Like uh, when you read this, that come to mind, like any communities, any types of, you know, and decentralized arrangements that you're a part of um, that you feel closely aligned with, where you actually feel like you're creating new types of arrangements that can compensate for centralized powers. Uh, one thing I would want to call out, actually, Christine, posted this on Facebook, there was this really great article by a woman named Nadia. I don't have, I'll paste the article in the chat. Um, but it's kind of a meta answer to your question, Allison, in that um, the article goes through these different ideas, what they call, what she calls idea machines. Um, and essentially like C-setting was sort of one that's kind of folded more into uh, network states, like crypto network states. Um, and then there's also kind of this analysis around, um, you know, the like specific f uh, foundations. So there used to be, say, you know, wealthy patrons like Rockefeller or Carnegie or whoever coming up with these, these, these structures. And I think we all are probably a part of maybe one or two uh, mentioned here, like, you know, the Schmidt Futures Group or the public funding, goods funding sort of like diaspora within Ethereum. Um, there's a new one, I think, that, that Vitalik just created about these these soul-based tokens um, or soul-bound tokens. And I guess, um, I think it's, it's helpful for framing it. It basically goes under like, you know, components from ideology to ideas, to like, funding, to getting operators, to building like a community scene. And so I'll just share the article. People can kind of dig into it, but I, I imagine that's a good grounder. Yeah, thanks. Um Cool. Well, I think that uh, it, yes, I mean, there's totally, I think, these different types of subcommunities. There's also, I think, one uh, which, oh, yes, yeah, Steve, uh, sorry, you go. Um, well, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to uh, uh, push something I submitted for a bounty, which is that I wrote in 2004, kind of my fix for capitalism, which essentially reformats it to being administered at the municipal level so it's sort of like you know seasteading or charter cities uh and so on and so forth but it's actually a subjective externality system and it uh essentially gets rid of the need for all regulation um so that's an example <laughs> okay cool i can't wait to look at your bounty okay. um yeah, uh, interesting. Um, I don't know, Mark, if you want to chime in, but um, I I remember, you know, I went to the first seasetting conference in Tahiti, um, and actually made my sister fly all the way out there, and was super excited. Um, and definitely, you know, I'm super like a big support of the China seating movement now, which is really picking our big steam again. But I think it is interesting that there are many different crypto nation uh, efforts really out there right now. Like there was a few. I think I went to one Praxis in San Francisco, and there's Bonadis Network State. There's now so many different Discord servers that are almost like their individual proto DAOs. Um, and so I think it's really cool that people are joining a bunch of these communities. And I think it's even better because they're not only joining one, but they're always joining several types. And so they really have this intersectionality and, and almost like an idea transfer across these different communities. And I think that 
you know, if we look at, um, at the fact that one really great thing that happened for peace is trade uh, across nations, right? And I think this kind of like Dao to Dao interactions is now like a new, uh, I think, like secondary layer of that. And so I think uh, in the, to the extent that when we came up with the ideas in the book, there wasn't really very much like this yet. And now there's a ton that's already out there live in the wild. It's super cool. I think many people here, I mean, Mike, uh, you probably too, but we're part of the DSI community, like the decentralized science community, which is like another um, big community that kind of like crazily erupted. Like, So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to try to continue Alison's point. I'll make a, a different point. Um, and then Allison can continue and she rejoins. Uh, the point about municipalities uh, and the whole subsidiarity thing, uh, I think is also reflected in what we're seeing in the crypto space, where initially we had uh, a small number of blockchains, and uh, but more importantly, each blockchain was architected as if it was supposed to be the only blockchain in the world. It's, it's each one sort of had the premise of, well, if we're the only blockchain, here's a great way to be a blockchain. Uh, and then if they're the only blockchain in the world and the blockchain as a whole operates in a single way, then there's this tremendous stress on governance arrangements, uh, different kinds of voting arrangements, uh, whatever. And, uh, and now we're in, a, we're in this ecosystem where we understand that there is this great multiplicity of blockchains. Different blockchains have different architectures. There's no, there's no forcing function that forces all of them into the same architecture, and they can still interoperate with pegging protocols like IBC. So the, one of the, the things that stands – so in that sense, the small blockchains are like municipalities and the large blockchains – are more like nation states. And one of the things that really, where the, the, for the small ones, the emphasis is competition and diversity. And for the large ones, the emphasis is on decision-making through governance. Uh, so with that contrast, one of the things that stands out to me that I think applies to both systems, uh, that's an argument for the subsidiarity, is the tolerance to mistakes. When Everyone has to agree on a small number of decisions that then affect everyone. There's this tremendous pressure to get it right before it gets rolled out, uh, because the consequence of getting it wrong is that you're now stuck in a wrong system. Whereas if you're making decisions at a small scale with separate municipalities, then if any one municipality gets it wrong, then the other municipalities can learn from their mistakes. And in the blockchain uh, version of that, where there's easy exit, then anyone that gets it wrong, the users of that can just flee elsewhere. Um, so, uh, so a lot of this really depends on your view of knowledge and whether we can figure out problems from first principles by thinking them out ahead of deployment, uh, the degree to which we can do that versus the, the degree to which we have to try things out, try out multiple experiments, and then learn from them to figure out in retrospect which were the good ideas. And, and in general, I think, for most ideas, especially for architectures of cooperation, uh, I believe much more in the learning in retrospect by comparing things in competition 
than trying to anticipate things uh, ahead of time and argue things out in uh, within a governance uh, decision making process. Allison, it looks like you're back. Yes, absolutely. Is there anyone who still wants to pull on that thread? Uh, I know that we only have like 26 more minutes and we still have like a few more questions to cover that we could um, if we want to. Um, I think maybe one interesting bit um, moving ahead and right in the chapter, we like talked about a bit about different types of corporate structures and how to do it better. But I think one really thing that we say at the, at the end of it is like the um, function of intelligizing volunteer cooperation, right? That's the first time we really introduced that concept. And so um, I just want to talk a little bit about that, just to foreshadow a few of the things that we discuss later. And so wondering if anyone can tell me why boundary setting is universal to both computers and institutions. And uh, that's one sub point that we make there. Or why composite, compositionality uh, is both presence and markets and APIs and why that is important. Any ideas that you had when reading these sections? I think now is a great time to discuss them. So we talk, uh, when we talk about how to intelligize cooperation, uh, we talk specifically about these individual bits. And if you had any ideas here or even any questions, that's uh, very welcome. Um, but here we have... I'm just curious if there is any research that looked at possibly the optimal size of municipalities and or nation states uh, to balance, ideally, try to, try to balance out the positive and negative aspects that going to far in one direction? Yeah, the only things that I'm aware of are things like, um, uh, yeah, we refer to Eleanor Ostrom and the research around Eleanor Ostrom uh, where there's just a lot more insight into the pros and cons of decision-making at different scales. Um, uh, I don't know how one would turn that into any kind of search for an optimum other than by observation and competition, but I think uh, that kind of greater insight into the pros and cons uh, uh, by rich, richer understanding that comes from observational and, and sort of more sociological and anthropological studies um, uh, is very interesting rather than just trying to work it out as if the players are sort of uh, uh, game theoretic or purely economic players. I think that, that um, uh, the issue of the psychology of the players and how very much affects what kinds of arrangements they came up they come up with and the richness of coordination mechanisms that work at different scales and i, I want to also recommend in this regard uh something that we do refer to in the book but but um uh, can be very much elaborated on uh which is uh adam smith's um uh, uh starting with the uh, theory of moral sentiments uh, and then uh, going from there to the wealth of nations, uh, you know, what we consider uh, generally to be micro in economics, what we call as micro, which is the idea of individuals operating as if by utility functions and then trying to explain this kind of game theory um, modeled uh, homoeconomicus behavior 
To Adam Smith, that's the macro. He starts in the theory of moral sentiments with the micro that's not a utility-optimizing model of human behavior. It has a very different explanation of human moral behavior that really comes from a, develop, a, psych, a, a developmental psychology theory, and I think it very much rings true. And then in bridging from there to um, Wealth of Nations, he derives why under scale, as we deal with many strangers, that under scale, the micro-moral sentiments theory comes to resemble a game theory utility theory. He doesn't have those terminologies. This is way before we had notions of, of utility or game theory, of course. But what we would now call game theory is to him an emergent approximation of what happens under scale for behavior that's explained in the micro um, uh, environment uh, through his moral sentiments theory, which is not utility maximizing. Yeah, I want to say if people want to dig deep on this, I highlighted this part here that's in the chapter before, um, where he also introduces the impartial spectator. Uh, and so it's a, uh, it's a great part. Okay, we have a bunch of hands up here. And I think, Ellen, you go. So uh, what, uh, when trying to apply um, intelligent systems to uh, voluntary collaboration, one of the things I found very quickly when doing the automated negotiation tool was that there are certain things that are very suitable for uh, automating, um, things like price or delivery date. But there are other things that have very fuzzy concepts, and the intelligence systems are not good, such things as quality. Um, and so the idea of the tool I developed was that the tool would take care of the easy ones, and people would still be involved. And so I think there's an evolution for what the intelligence system can handle. And over time, it can take over more, but there may be some that may never be able to handle. Jazia? Um, yeah, so uh, what um, you know, Mike was just discussing made me come to a realization that if these municipalities are needed to test policies that are risky, um, before they're deployed on uh, larger nation-state type groups, then presumably people who experiment in these municipalities should, uh, number one, be rewarded more for um, their risk that they're taking on, and number two, are going to have to be more active in providing feedback on whether the system works. So in, in a lot of democracies, America included, a lot of people don't vote and don't really participate in the civic process Whereas I imagine in, you know, a, a charter city, uh, that would have to change a bit just because the information about whether this is working is not there. Um, and there's a great analogy for this with cryptocurrencies where uh, if you, you know, buy a risky token, they're probably going to give you a lot more liquidity mining rewards or staking rewards. Um, and I, I imagine that any sort of like challenge trial setup, uh, challenger trial setup would, would have to be similarly structured. Um, and then another thing that, that uh, Mark brought up that, that kind of... Um, triggered something for me is this idea of these 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 moral structures well i haven't read adam smith's uh thinking on that i i always feel like in these economic uh analyses that the problems that are appearing to be economic need to like break down into psychological sociological or biological problems um because that's really like what is driving our actions um 
And I imagine that if you think about a psychological or sociological level, that's where a lot of Adam Smith's maybe moral um, content comes from. And I, I, it's, just, it's just always something to keep in mind that when I see economic uh, problems that, that aren't sol- resolved with traditional theory, that these things have to devolve into uh, one of the psychological, sociological, or biological. Wonderful. Yeah, I just shared something on Prospects and Prosper, um, where actually they are experimenting with different uh, types of uh, voting rights. Uh, and one one is really getting compensated yet for moving there. I also think that would be an interesting idea. Um, I do think that now that the government changed, they actually, uh, I think, are trying to prohibit Prosper again, which is, I think, a currently existing charity. city. But uh, yeah. So I know that we maybe have like 17 minutes left. Um, and I do want to get to the part where we talk about civilization as a super intelligence. Um, did that not sound controversial to any one of you? Were you all like, just nodding away, like yes, civilization is a super intelligence. It's totally obvious. Um, I wonder how no one is um, either outraged or at least surprised by the statement, um, and 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 how we build it up. You know, by really uh, looking at the different parallels between different types of entities and how they interact and to produce a greater and greater problem-solving ability. Was that very intuitive uh, to folks, or yeah, do you have any ideas um, how you know we basically say that we are already uh, interacting with non-human super intelligences in the form of institutions? Um, AIs uh, are uh, very different, uh, but nevertheless, we can learn uh, something by the way that we are already aligned or not aligned, or our institutions are already aligned or not aligned with us, and by the way that we can already make sure that these co- institutions are contained. Um, uh, and yeah, so uh, Alexander, you go. Thanks. Um, so part of it is intuitive. Uh, I think probably mostly because of all the thought experiments with corporations being super intelligences and these, especially if you did machine learning in college or things of that nature. Um, I would say it could be part of it is a little bit eyebrow raising because of the fact that it's very intuitively obvious that um, similar to like something that's not magnetized, all the vectors are pointing at different directions is kind of sitting in the same place. Um, that concept but most mostly to me i think uh super intelligence itself is hard to define uh easily um unless it's pointing in a very clear objective and it's not like frankly if you were to take the sum total of human behavior it would seem uh not super clear what we're trying to achieve if you don't zoom out really really far um if that makes sense so those are those are my initial thoughts, especially after reading. The other piece, though, is um, I, I would posit it only can become clear if you have a deep understanding of the idea of emergence as a philosophical concept. Um, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll stop there. Yeah, Mark, do you have any comments for this? Uh, it looks like uh, Jazir, I just saw him... Um, uh... Interesting comment in the chat. Uh, Jazir, why don't, we, why don't you take it? Um, I mean, I can maybe reiterate what I was saying here. I'm, I'm kind of listening to the thread, but also like the, the conversation, but also just looking at comments. Um, thinking about this idea machine, really, Kendra was saying, you know, what about these illegitimate governance structures in cr- like criminal organizations, which I think just by itself is fascinating because it implies that there are certain rights people expect sort of in absence of the enforcement of other rights. Um, we all kind of maybe uncomfortable, but it's true that like the United States government or the governments of whatever country we're, we're, we're in 
is probably like not respecting the rights of people in, in other domiciles. And, and, and that's something that like either protects us or at least we um, are, are not really suffering as a result and, and, and are kind of part of what some people whose rights are being infringed on would say is itself a, a criminal word. Um, but then there, she kind of went on to say that um, there are these uh, certain groups that, that actually try to intertwine with legitimate orgs. So pretty much every single criminal enterprise um, that's, that's major has, you know, a front or uh, a government connect or something like that. Um, and like a front meaning a business store where they, where they run the business legitimately, or maybe a, uh, you know, a connection to, to, to like, you know, voted in or a legitimate governance, which I also think is pretty interesting. And maybe the takeaway that we're kind of arriving to in this conversation is that these idea machines or these groups of people who have a vision for what the world needs to be, um, they, uh, if they are doing something illegal, and I cite things like cryptocurrencies, uh, psychedelics users, civil rights activists, especially given that you know abortion will be illegal or at least not not protected by Roe v. Wade soon. Um, but the the idea that like there are these idea machines that uh, of things that people really believe in strongly that may not be legal or entirely legal. Um, the, the idea that like these idea machines maybe push. Uh, the the Overton window in some way or otherwise fear society until they become legal or they become legitimate. There, there's probably a lot of research here. It's probably very applicable to things that we do as a, as a society, as as like on, on our call. Like it's probably applicable to people in this conversation. Um, so that's that's sort of where where I I was going. Okay, uh, let's see if we can square the point with that superintelligence. Uh, I do think that was an interesting point that you made, just you and, and Alexander too. I wonder, you know, you're basically saying um, from an external observer point, it wouldn't be quite clear what it is that humans or human civilization would be optimizing for. Is, was that roughly your point? I think um, the idea that we're in a super intelligence, like society itself is a super intelligence, to me kind of implies that there are, um, there's cognition that's happening at the uh, interaction layer, at the relationships layer that does not exist in the nodes, like the institutions or the people. Um, and we, we might actually really benefit from just looking at like the emergent behavior and then try to uh, like identify what actually makes sense. Um, I think, uh, you know, speaking about things like maybe not so much psychedelics, but what, what I call ecstatic states. Uh, I've been talking a lot with people in, in Sif Chain's uh, sort of Sif Dow team around how that stuff is really important because it enables you to, um, think in ways that shift the status quo and religions have kind of like operationalized, uh, you know, thinking in a static states to help you shift from the status quo. I, I also think that like, there's, there's a lot of work in, in these teal organizations, um, which are like non hierarchical instead of being, um, you know, the, the CEO decides X and everyone falls in line. It's more like we sort of emerge from the bottom up to figure things out. And, um, I, you know, without going into how successful these have been, I'd say reasonably successful, but but could be better. Um, the the thing that that's kind of been taken away from those is uh, the, the in absence of a single authoritarian leader, what you have really is the culture itself. Uh, you have the memes, even you have these ideas that people just spread as images or that keep kind of recurring. And if you just spend some time thinking about what everyone else is talking about, you slowly realize, okay, the super intelligence is guiding us this way or that way. Um, so, yeah, I imagine, you know, we maybe we all need to think a bit more about means to understand what the superintelligence is guiding us to. And that will help us make wiser decisions to go where the puck is heading rather than just maybe being where the puck is. 
Mark? Yeah, I want to inject um, also a note, note of caution uh, that uh, uh, just because a process is voluntary and decentralized uh, doesn't mean that it necessarily is adaptive and produces good results. Um, and and, and an example from biology of a, of a positive feedback loop that basically takes a random accident and amplifies it uh, in a non-adaptive way uh, is a sexual selection, uh, the peacock feathers that there's, or, or antlers, uh, that there's some expensive thing. The expensive thing might be a signal that something else is healthy, but then uh, sexual selection uh, there's now a, as soon as there's an advantage to having the thing that benefits from sexual selection, then that amplifies the benefit of the behavior of sexual mate selection, selecting for the thing that has that benefit. Uh, so with that as sort of a, a well-understood baseline of how a decentralized voluntary system can just amplify noise and go crazy, um, uh, the one that stands out to me right now, observing society, is shunning behavior. Is uh, It's very good that we can decide to um, uh, stop listening to toxic voices. Uh, that's great. Um, uh, but when we start shunning those who don't shun those that we think should be shunned, then we can create this amplification of shunning that if people start shunning simply because they don't want to be shunned for absence of shunning, that there's too much punishment for not punishing, uh, then the, um, you know, then the voluntary deciding to deplatform or not listen or, or, or shun not to associate uh, can become a runaway phenomenon that again just takes some random decision and amplifies it uh, through this through this positive feedback loop. So even going to decentralization and volunteerism, uh, we need to also be looking at the dynamics and try to figure out um, uh, good negative balancing feedback loops are usually adaptive. Uh, positive feedback loops that don't have compensation mechanisms uh, can often amplify noise and go crazy. Any comments to this? I would say strong, strong agree. Um, I, I typed something in the chat, but the way I kind of think about it is the, the limits really that you're describing come because we're biological, sociological, or psychological. And just generally speaking, however you want to think about it, it's like we're not um, we, there's almost this vote that's being cast by mother nature or our just, you know, ancestry that you kind of have to take into account. And, um, how you do that is, you know, there, there's probably ways to simulate things, but I, I imagine if you, you have Alice and Bob kind of discussing something, you also need to consider, you know, mother nature casting a vote on how they think. Um, and I imagine you, you need some kind of maverick thinking or exceptionalism to, make people push away, even if it's just sociological, right? The idea that, you know, institutions or grandparents or whatever had certain ideas about how things should be done, and we're just stuck with them because we haven't thought about them. Um, there's there's definitely a lot to uh, 
thinking about the unspoken norms. All right. Great. Any other comments before we near the end of this session on the parallels between different types of intelligences that are non-human, whether they're institutions, uh, other types of very simple uh, software objects, um, how we can cooperate or gradually learn to cooperate with them. Um, any further thoughts on these analogies that we're already introducing early to then uh, revisit later in the book when we speak about artificial intelligences? Was that roughly intuitive? Is this how you think about interacting with institutions already uh, as these types of entities that are already non-human intelligences that may or may not be aligned with humans? I have a point about, um, about uh, gender's point about mother nature. I think lots of, um, there's, there's a strong tension between, I think, uh, what would benefits our genes, replications, and often our uh, rational, moral beliefs. Like, like there's a lot of people who are Christians who see uh, Jesus as an ideal that they can never kind of achieve kind of the altruistic behavior that they see because they are um, uh, driven away from that or, or like kind of controlled like with pain and pleasure as a carrot and stick by, by kind of these um, uh, a gene homunculus kind of thing, controlling our actions and rewarding certain behaviors that are promote their own replication as opposed to carrying out the actions which they rationally believe are probably the most moral actions too. So I think it'd be great if we can advance neuroscience to the point such that we have a little more control over our motivational systems and our Central Australia, uh, to kind of reward ourselves for engaging in pro-social behaviors um, as opposed to, to anti-social behaviors generally. I think that would become a lot of the problems around the world. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, in, in the long run, uh, I believe you can build the matrix um, and basically do a lot of neurohacking, but that's maybe for a, a decade or two from now, um, at least research. Um, and I, I think in the in the near term, I believe that we should still do uh, you know, neural modifications or, or, or hacking, let's say, but not um, by by like you know adding hardware to people's brains so much as creating social structures that do this. So I've definitely found, depending on the social circle that I'm in, I can be more pro-social. Um, frankly, in in some ways, at some levels that I, I didn't even know was possible because uh, things like sexual selection or uh, positive reinforcement in terms of communication or, you know, getting a notification on my app or something like that uh, rewards me. So I um, I think all the conversation we've been having here around, like, you know, advertisers who don't necessarily have your long-term best interest at heart, but being able to understand you at a deep level and, and trigger you to take action. I think if we take the reach that advertisers have and instead the, the advertisement is more around, like, be a good person, smile, be pro-social, be caring, um, stuff like that. Um, I believe, you know, that that's sort of a form of, of the kind of neurological hacking you're describing, not as perfect as, as just directly going to the brain, but I think it's a good next step. One thing that we do discuss in the chapter before is Marvin Minsky's warning that um, agents are also there to be in conflict with each other, our internal agents in our head. In the moment that we start tinkering with our brain, we, again, it's like tinkering with institutions, um, 
And maybe some of these uh, impulses, even if they conflict with each other, were there for a reason. But nevertheless, we can experiment safely, I guess, and figure it out. We are at the end of this now. I do want to draw attention to the bounty that we have. Here it is. I posted it in the chat. What's the most important legacy institution to help humans cooperate? Please, please, please submit your answer to that to win 0 0.5 ETH. Um, and that bounty is still running for a little while. And that is really to get your ideas on what's still missing in the book. Uh, and I can't wait to welcome you next time uh, to be discussing crypto commerce tools and how we can cooperate better. Thank you so, so much for joining everyone. It was really, really wonderful. And yeah, next time we really level it up a notch and discuss how technologies can now help us from where we are today to really reinvent and then invent a bunch of new institutions that help humans to cooperate better. And then afterwards, we take it uh, into the risks that arise from this before we level it up and include artificial intelligence. So thanks a lot for joining everyone. This was really, really great. Yeah. And thanks for your super smart and amazing comments. Really appreciate it. Mark, any final words? Yeah. And Allison, mention who the guest speakers are for next meeting. Next meeting, we have um, Paul Gebheim from uh, Augur and uh, Kate Sills, who was at Agoric before and who gave a few really, really, really fantastic talks already in the series last year. They were much loved. So you can look forward to a really wonderful session. So thanks a lot, everyone, for joining. Really excited for next time. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>